We're on to the sixth chapter of Mark's record in the life of Jesus, and we'll read in today the first six verses. Mark chapter 6, beginning of verse 1. And he went out from thence and came into his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, from whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joses and of Judah and of Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honour, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. And he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marvelled because of their unbelief. And he went round their villages, teaching. Amen. We left Jesus and the disciples last week at Capernaum. We witnessed two miracles. The healing of a disease in one and the raising from the dead in the other. Today we're observing how Jesus and his followers go to what's called his own country. It simply means his own area. And we know Jesus was from Nazareth. You may have heard the term gospel harmony. Now this describes the attempt to construct an accurate timeline of Jesus' life. The gospels of Matthew, Mark and Luke are used for that purpose. That They are different perspectives but they are similar enough to compare now, in preaching from Mark, it's not my intention to bring the different eyewitness accounts together to give the full picture. We're not preaching the Gospels, we're preaching from a Gospel, Mark's. And if Mark decides to omit certain incidents or details, you'll likely not hear me preach about them. Each of the Gospels deserves attention. In its own right. But still I think the attempt to harmonise these different accounts into one does have its place. It's through these endeavours that we've discovered things like, uh, well we can't assume each of the gospel accounts are chronological. And I wanted to mention it because I found something of interest uh, for us today. I learned that this return to his hometown wasn't his first visit during his ministry. I'm not going to preach on that first visit, but we should at least bear it in mind. He faced great hostility then, and his reception this time isn't much better. I intend to open up this uh, passage for you today with the use of five aspects of it, five headings. I'd like us then, firstly, to consider how the people acknowledged Jesus Christ as unique. The people acknowledged him as unique. 
the first thing we notice is their astonishment. Astonishment. You might recall in chapter 1, Jesus was teaching in a synagogue and they were astonished at his doctrine. And they were even more astonished when he cast out a demon. Well, back in chapter 6, we read here of the questions coming from the astonished hearers. Where's he getting this knowledge from? How has he come to have such wisdom? We read in John 7, verses 14 to 15. John 7, 14, 15. Now, about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying... How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? By letters it means learning. How can he be educated without an education? The people's astonishment also due to the mighty works Jesus had performed. I'm sure Jesus was the talk of the town. In which case the people will have heard of the incredible miracles he performed. There was such power in this man. Viruses obeyed him. Demons obeyed him. The elements obeyed him. And even dead people obeyed him. They acknowledged him as unique. But secondly, let's see how they perceived him as perfectly normal. They perceived him as perfectly normal. Jesus' family and the people of his hometown observed him growing up as a normal child. They knew he required food, water and shelter, just like them. They saw him working for a living, the same as everyone else. So they got this one thing right. He was a real man. Their minds just can't shed this question. Isn't this the local carpenter? He just makes things out of wood. He may do it to a high standard, but he's still just a regular carpenter. It's interesting to compare the thoughts of those who witnessed some of the actions of the apostles. In Acts 4 and 13, Acts 4 and 13, it says... Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marvelled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. The people of Nazareth knew Jesus. They knew his trade. They knew his parents. They knew his family members. We know him, they said, and he's just like us. I think it's a great testimony to the doctrine of Jesus' humanity. These people were fully convinced he was just like them. He didn't wear bright white clothing. He didn't have a halo on his head. And I imagine he wouldn't have got a job as a male model. You might recall it says in uh, Isaiah uh, 53. 
verse 2, it says, For he, that's Jesus, shall grow up before him, that's God, as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form or comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus could have spent his time in this world as a tall, physically attractive man. He could have worn shining white clothes. He could even have produced a halo effect over his head. But God was not going to draw people to Jesus through such carnal attractiveness. He was going to draw people to Jesus with a God-given faith. And unless God does draw a man to Jesus by an irresistible work of the Holy Spirit, they will never come to him. We'll have a look firstly at the admission that Jesus was special, and secondly at the perception of him as being normal. We'll now look at the conclusion they came to. The conclusion they came to. It's because of the very nature of the incarnation that this, this paradox, this puzzle, arises in the minds of people. On the one hand, it was clear Jesus spoke with real authority and displayed a power superior to that of any mere man. On the other hand, all the evidence of their senses showed them Jesus was most certainly a man. A voice of authority coming from an uneducated tradesman. A divine power from one in all appearances no different from them. There's the puzzle. If Jesus had a physical appearance that matched his miracles, no doubt all would believe he was a prophet of God. Likewise, had his actions been normal, matching his appearance, all would happily conclude he was just a normal man. But here, they're faced with something else, a mixture they can't fathom. Godlike actions from this guy down the street. Now, God says they're responsible for their unbelief, their sceptical attitude, but there's not one of us that would have reacted any differently unless God gave us heavenly vision. I've used this picture before to try and drive home just how puzzling this must have been for these people. Picture a lad of 30 years old. He's a roofer, perhaps, and he lives in your street. You see him one day, pack his bags and leave. And stories start to circulate about him. Strange articles appear in the local papers where witnesses are claiming to have seen this man in London doing miraculous things. It's all over the internet. Then one day he comes back to Liverpool. He's different. His speech is odd. He talks like he understands the mysteries of God. He comes across as one who has been with God. And he might even bless you by performing a miracle in front of your eyes. What 
would you think? If he claimed to be the son of God. It would be tough. Now if you think that the miracle would be the real deal clencher. Then you'd be wrong. Because some of the people who witnessed Jesus' miracles first hand. Went on to reject him. What would you do with this man down your street? Most likely, you'd convince yourself the reports of his miracles were fake. And if you saw him perform a miracle, you'd likely persuade yourself it was some kind of conjuring trick. The same as those people. Man left to his own devices will gravitate quite naturally towards unbelief. So what was their conclusion? They took offence. They were offended. This is the cry of the world today. More and more people are becoming offended. They're told they should feel offended. And if they don't feel it at first, they convince themselves they ought to be. If you say something another finds offensive, you'll likely be reported to someone. Jobs have been created to clamp down on offensive speech. Laws have been made to see to it that certain people are shielded from feeling offended. And I'll take this opportunity at this point to say, unreservedly, the whole anti-offence industry is sinful. It's the world's... uh, A Christian might object to this and claim, well, the motives for the policies are good. But that's not true. Because if a Christian goes to the media or their employer or the police and complains that they're offended by, I don't know, the promotion of sexual immorality in schools, for example, their protests will be ignored. We don't care if you're offended. If anything, they may even find themselves uh, being arrested or something for simply expressing their opinion. Just The world just lunges from one madness to another. One obsession to another. And it's got nothing to do with the gospel. I find the best way to cope with the world's hysteria is to ignore it as much as possible and keep our eyes on Jesus these people were offended at Jesus but offence can mean different things not everything Jesus spoke caused outrage the sense of offence here is that the people formed a mental barrier against accepting Jesus as a prophet of God or something greater There was a stumbling block in their minds. For all they heard and saw, they couldn't shake the reality they knew Jesus to be a normal human being. Isaiah 49 and verse 7. Isaiah 49 verse 7 reads, Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and his Holy One, to him whom man despiseth, to him whom the nation abhorreth, 
to his servants of rulers. Kings shall see and arise. Princes also shall worship because of the Lord that is faithful and the Holy One of Israel. And he shall choose thee. It was prophesied that Jesus would be despised. And he was. The people knew Jesus was unique. He looked normal. They inevitably came to a conclusion. Did they conclude he was Lord of all? No. They conclude he was a fraud. So fourthly, we listen to Jesus explain why they came to this wrong conclusion. Why they came to this wrong conclusion. A prophet, he says, might be respected elsewhere, but not in the area he comes from. To be more specific, it's the people who, who know him. So that applies to the, the streets where he grew up, but also the family he lives with, even if they move to a different area. It's those who know you from old, those who you remember you from back in the day. I've explained that with those who knew Jesus in his earlier life, their refusal to accept him was based only on them being convinced he was not different from them. But remember, these people were not recalling Jesus' past sins because there were none. As a child, he was obedient to his parents. As a learner, he was attentive and well-behaved. As a tradesman, he was honest. And as a neighbour, he was nothing but friendly. How much more, do you think, will modern-day prophets be rejected? The modern counterpart of a prophet would be primarily the preacher. But the principle can be extended to all believers who are bearing witness for, for Christ Jesus. People are offended at us too. Now the reasons are different, slightly different. We don't bear the same power as Jesus did in his ministry. We don't bear the claim that we're, we're divine. But we do bear a message. The other difference is we've sinned all our lives. So instead of fully considering our message, people cannot shake the knowledge of our sinful and stupid past and also our obvious humanity. Jesus mentions three different audiences who find it most difficult to accept representatives of God. Those of their own country, that's the area they're from, their relatives and those of their own household, that is their parents and siblings etc. You should expect to find a difficult audience in your former neighbours. You may have been seen when a young person damaging someone's property. People might remember you stealing your mum's cigarettes or they may have witnessed you getting drunk as a teenager. Maybe you were saved in later life but you will have left people with memories of your selfishness or dishonesty or pride or aggressiveness, 
adultery or your poor show as a husband and father. We're all different. We have different paths. But there's not one of us that hasn't left a trail of sin in our lives. No doubt the people in the areas where I grew up would gladly share stories of some of the things I did, the type of person I was. But you should also expect to find a difficult audience among your relatives. If the people in your street knew you, how much more your relatives? They'd be party to all kinds of details other people wouldn't. Spending time in your home or on holiday with you. They'd see all kinds of actions and attitudes they could remind you of if need be. How sad it is to witness to a relative only for them to say, You have a very short memory. Don't forget, I knew you when you were younger. What they're saying is they won't listen to anything about morality or sin or judgment from someone with a history similar to theirs. And perhaps the worst audience of all are those of your own household. Your parents, your siblings, even your own children. Only God in heaven knows more than these people about your behaviour. If need be, they could rake up hundreds of examples of your bad behaviour. They see your inconsistency and they're very good at remembering it. And so Jesus shows us the tragedy that very often those we love most are least likely to listen to our testimony. If you have unbelieving children, you will understand what that tragedy feels like. I note it's, it's said that Jesus was astounded by people's belief. I wanted to address this. I thought I should. He was astounded. Dare I say he was surprised by it. Now I said to you that in considering the life of Jesus as we are, we shall time and time again come face to face with the mystery that is the incarnation. I had cause to mention it only last week. It comes into play now because if he was surprised, it suggests he wasn't expecting it, which in turn suggests he didn't know everything. And there are several other examples in the scriptures which suggest the same thing. I told you last week I didn't understand the incarnation. A week has passed and I still don't. The safest course to take in these baffling theological puzzles is to stick to what the scriptures say. He marvelled at their unbelief. I want to use these points to introduce my final and most important point it is that faith is a gift of God. Faith is a gift of God. Verse 5 of our chapter says something rather surprising. It says Jesus could not do any significant works in the town 
because of the people's unbelief. Now that statement raises a flag in our minds. Jesus was unable to do something. In view of what we said a moment ago about Jesus being taken aback, you might think this statement means Jesus was unable to perform miracles in this case. You might argue that by virtue of in humbling himself to the state of a man, he relinquished some of his power and that he didn't have that absolute power that could overcome unbelief and heal anyway. But the more likely explanation is that Jesus could not do these things while being consistent. He meant to show very clearly the necessity of faith for healing, most especially healing from sin. In his hometown, there were so few who'd received God-given faith in him that he wouldn't perform great miracles. He wouldn't perform the miracles without it. This was Jesus' hometown. No doubt he had some kind of affinity with the place and the people. How good it would have been for him to go home and help the people and bless them with miracles. But instead, he would withhold these things in order to present to all people the importance of faith. That verse we all know from Ephesians, which is on the wall behind me, tells it very clearly. By grace are ye saved through faith. The grounds for our salvation is the grace of God. The means which he employs to save us is faith. So a man needs faith in order to be saved. But how does God communicate this faith to a man? After all, a man can't exercise faith in Christ by himself. People are so steeped in pride that their very nature puts them off. Admitting their utter worthlessness isn't an option. Unless God has decreed before time to give faith to a man, that man will never have faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation is all of God. The purpose in eternity was of him. The regeneration of his people is of him. And the very attitude of repentance and faith that a broken man experiences is still all of God. The question stands, how does a man come to have this faith? Paul gives us the answer in the letter to the church at Rome. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing what? Hearing God speak. God speaks to us today through his word. And whether that word is read to us or read by us, 
We hear it. In the story arc of a man's salvation, God sees to it that man hears his word and through it is given the gift of faith and repentance. But what if God has determined to judge your people? Well, he will create a death of gospel preachers. Very few, if any, will have that fire kindled in their souls, the fire that drives them to preach the word of God to saints and sinners alike. This death of preachers leads to a famine of the word of God. The evangelists vanish from the city centres. The pulpits are filled by those who don't understand the gospel. Christian bookshops contain new age ramblings and popery. And this famine means that people don't hear God speaking. The only voices they hear are from the lying media and shallow showbiz personalities, false religionists and fortune tellers. And the absence of hearing God through his word means there's no faith. And a society that doesn't have faith in God will reject his ministers laugh at the gospel, undermine marriage, distort justice, and generally do that which is right in their own eyes. Jesus turns from his hometown to the villages. He took his divine words and works elsewhere. On a bigger scale, he would later tell the Jews that the kingdom would be taken from them and given to someone else. And on the largest scale of all, we read that the gospel, which is, which is at present being preached all over the world, will soon be removed. Sinful men and women the world over will, sooner or later, realise the terrible judgment unbelief has brought on them. Time is running out for this world. The era of the gospel preacher will soon be at an end. If there are gospel preachers in our land, and there are, we should thank, thank God for it. It's here you take men who are unfit for the task and equips them. So the gospel can be heard in the town centres. Scores of congregations around our land are blessed to hear faithful ministry each week from their pastors. And of course we can hear the Bible by reading it ourselves. And there's no shortage of Bibles in our land. God tells us he has people out there, his children yet to have their destiny revealed to them. 
And we're all to try and reach them as best we can. For most, this will be in quite small ways. But there's something else you can do. God tells you to pray specifically for the raising up of gospel preachers. Pray that the mighty name of Jesus might be uplifted in our land. 1 Peter 2 and verse 4 says, To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. He is a precious saviour. And although he was destined to be rejected by all but a few, we have to present him to men, women and children. We tell them about Jesus. We tell them what he has done for us. We tell them he will save all who come to him in faith. Blessed, Jesus said, blessed is the one who is not offended by him. Amen.